I'd also like to welcome you to Lakeside Christian Church this morning. We're glad that you're here with us. We are um, continuing in a series entitled, Out of Bethlehem, Salvation from Unexpected Places. And we're looking at an Old Testament uh, person by the name of David, and we're looking at his life. The big idea behind the series, Salvation from Unexpected Places, is that We're looking at a period in time in Israel's history when everything could have fallen apart. The nation uh, had had failure at the level of leadership at the king, and there could have been just complete disarray going forward. It was actually, it was hard to see where there would be a future for this nation. But that's when we look just from a human perspective and from a human vantage point, it's difficult to see. But God had already had a plan of how he was going to rescue his people and how he was going to provide a solution to their problems so that they could be redeemed. And it was from a small town, Bethlehem, which is familiar to us because we have at least heard in part the story of Jesus in Bethlehem. But this is a long, long time before Jesus and Bethlehem. And so Bethlehem is just this small, out-of-the-way town where not much of significance happens. And so for God to bring salvation this way is to do something surprising, something new, something nobody could have seen. And so all along this series, we're hoping to be encouraged throughout just to, as we look at the circumstances of our own lives, to believe that God is never limited to what we can do or what we can see or make happen. But he is always able to bring about something spontaneous, new, and exciting. And so that there is always the possibility of hope. There is always the possibility of redemption when God is involved because he can do unexpected things with resources that we do not have. Today, specifically, what we're going to see is that one of the ways he did that was through what we would think of in some ways as just a very ordinary thing, which is friendship between two people. And we're going to see the importance of friendship in our journey with God, how we we need other people to live faithfully the way that God wants us to be. We, We don't fully become ourselves and enjoy life like it's meant to be enjoyed when we don't have any friends that we can share life with. Each one of us here were created in such a way that we desire to have relationships with other people as we live our lives. That's how God made us, in part because it reflects his own character as one God in three persons. Uh, God in community is how we as Christians understand the Trinity. And so God putting his image in us, we long for and desire human relationship, human friendship. And we'll see this in the life of Jonathan and David. But this story spans about three chapters in the Bible. So I'm going to ask you to take a Bible and to open it. Uh, We're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Or if you have a phone, you're turning your phone on at this point, but you're making sure it's on vibrate or uh, silent or whatever you need to do. But 1 Samuel chapter 18, if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, it's on page 241. And we're going to kind of jump. So for some of you, that'll mean turning pages. And for others, that means scrolling um, with your thumb on your phone. So whatever works best for you. But we're going to read in three chapters, not the totality of them. But if you can be listening while reading, I'll tell you when to jump and where to jump. But we're going to start 1 Samuel chapter 18. We'll read the first 16 verses here, or the first... 15 verses here before we jump. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. 
And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. He said they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And as he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came before them. Now we'll jump to the next chapter, 19, and read the first seven verses. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. We're skipping to chapter 20, but that covenant that Saul made was short-lived. And he went after David again. So the beginning of chapter 20. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramon, came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, 
Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. So David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at a table with the king. But let me go, that I might hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there's a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he's angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. And why should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go into the field. And so they both went into the field. Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as his own soul. And that's where we'll stop for now. Each of the parts we skipped have about two or three subplots in them. And that's sort of the danger of this whole series is trying to get through everything, but in a, a timely way. But where we opened is that we see a friendship begins. Saul is the king, Jonathan is his son, David has just become the most popular man in all of Israel because of his um, successful victory over Goliath. And so when chapter 18 opens, David has been in the kingdom for a while, he's been playing music for Saul to calm his spirit so they know each other, but there's something unique that happens, and it's the, the wording is that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. When Jonathan looked at David, there was something unique that God did. It wasn't just a, a matter of common interest or, or a common phase of life, but something supernatural, distinct, where Jonathan looked at David and loved him and wanted to be his friend for the rest of his life. As this relationship begins, there, there's tremendous potential for, for what could be between these two. But Jonathan would be one of the people next in line to become the king of Israel. He's Saul's son. And so whenever Saul passes on or passes on the kingdom, Jonathan would be one of the people who would be in line of that succession. But Jonathan does something quite amazing to show David just how much he desires David's good. He takes everything that he has that's sort of a picture of what it means to be the prince, his robe, his sword, his belt. And he says, David, you're so much my friend 
You can even have these things which really belong exclusively to someone who's a child of Saul's. He says, you can hold this sword. You can wear this belt. You can have this robe. And so giving us a a dramatic picture of what he said, that he loved him as his own soul. That's how he thought about David. But as this friendship began, there was also a jealousy that grew. So a friendship begins, but then a jealousy grows where David comes home, or actually Saul's the one who comes home, and there's a party outside. There's tambourines going, there's people dancing, there's instruments happening, live music everywhere. And the refrain is, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And rather than Saul saying, aren't I a lucky king to have somebody like David as one of my, I mean, this guy is good. Instead of celebrating what they were singing, it makes Saul jealous. This jealousy moves to anger, and this anger moves to a very specific desire to harm David. It says that he actually tries on his own with a spear. He tries to pin him to the wall. Then one of the first parts that we skipped over in verse 18, Saul says, okay, how about this? How about I break his heart? So Saul comes to David and he says, hey, I have my oldest daughter. I'd love for you to marry her. Wow. I mean, if you get married to the king's daughter, that gets you into the king's family in a very, very direct way. And so Saul says, here's a daughter. And then right before it was time for a marriage to take place, Saul gives her to be married to someone else. And David's left basically at the altar. And then he says, okay, no, I, you know, sorry about that. I have another daughter for you. But to earn this daughter, what I want you to do is to go out and fight and do this. And what Saul does is he sends David out, basically ill-equipped for battle. So first Saul tried to kill him himself, then he breaks his heart, and then he sends him out to battle, hoping that he'll just die in battle, because soldiers die in battle. And so David will be gone, but it won't actually be Saul's direct actions. Well, that doesn't work. David comes back and he's actually twice as successful as he had been before. But as this jealousy grew and Saul is willing to go to all of these great lengths in order to eliminate David, what happens by the time we get to chapter 19 is truly David's life is now entirely dependent upon this friendship. So we have this friendship that began, but this jealousy has grown to the point of just malicious, violent anger towards David. And so now David's is a life that depends upon the friendship of Jonathan. At the beginning of 18, they were just friends doing their own thing. But now, if Jonathan is not a friend to David, David doesn't have much more time on this earth. Because when chapter 19 opens, now Saul says, I've not been successful. The Philistines can't seem to take care of him. His broken heart hasn't taken him out. So now Saul says to Jonathan and his servants, I want you guys to do it. So now Jonathan, he has inside information that David does not have. And the jealousy of Saul is only growing. And so David's life is completely in the hands of of Jonathan. And Jonathan says to David, don't worry about that. I mean, he, he tells him what the plan is. Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. So be careful, but let me talk to him. And so Jonathan does. Jonathan chooses in this instance to see how much David depends upon him. And out of pity says, I will act on your behalf. And the more that Saul's anger grows, the riskier this gets for Jonathan. 
because now he's directly disobeying the orders of the king, even though the king's his dad. The king has made his wishes clear. I want you or your servants, however you want to work it out, to do this. And so Jonathan, in choosing to be David's friend, and therefore to try everything he can to make sure this doesn't happen, begins to put himself at risk. But he does it. He speaks to Saul, and he says, Let not the king sin against his servant David. He's not sinned against you. All he's done is good for you. He took his life in his own hands when he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. And so Saul, in a moment of sanity, says, You know what? You're right. How could I be so angry at someone who has done so much good for me? And he swears that he won't put him to death. But that doesn't last long, Saul. Once he gets back into the house, Saul actually tries to pin him to the wall again. Gets so bad that David's wife comes to him in a night and says, if you don't leave tonight, you won't be alive in the morning. And so she lets him out of the house through a window and David disappears into the night. The next day they come looking for David and what she's done is kind of made the bed look like someone's in it. And she says, oh, no, 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 he's sick, so he can't come out. So the report comes back to her dad, and her dad says, he's sick, that means he can't fight back right now. Let's go get him. So they go into the room, they pull the covers, they realize David's not actually in there, and now they're mad at her for lying to them. And so she actually turns the story and and, and makes it sound like she didn't let him go, but uh, it, it was basically all on him that he would decide to leave so that she can just protect herself from her own father. So the stakes are only getting higher and higher, such that by the time we got to chapter 20, David meets Jonathan and says, what have I done? What's my guilt? What's my sin? And there's a meal that's going to take place. And David says, I'm not showing up. And Jonathan says, don't worry about it. I'll find out for you what's going on. And David asks him a pointed question and says, how will I know if he answers harshly to you? Which basically what he's saying is, if you, Jonathan, put your neck out on the line for me, and he gets mad at you like he's mad at me, and therefore he kills you like he wants to kill me, how will I know? So the stakes are only getting higher and higher for this friendship. Jonathan wants to be David's friend, wants to protect him in this situation, But Saul's anger is only growing so much so that they have to come up with some plan of if this goes really bad and really bad for Jonathan as well, how would David know so that David could flee all the more? Thankfully, Jonathan stays alive. They come up with a plan, which you can read all in chapter 20. Jonathan gets the message to David. And then next week we'll look. It's, It's a series of chapters where now, basically until Saul is dead, David is on the run in the wilderness because no one has been able to talk Saul out of his intentions and his harm. And so David's life truly did depend upon this friendship that he had with Jonathan. One of the interesting things is that Jonathan, right before David has to leave, where they're not going to see each other as much, they make a covenant together. Jonathan comes together, and so then there's this covenant that binds them. And he basically promises to David that 
as much as in his power, he will do whatever he can, whenever he can, however long God gives him breath to do it, to make sure that harm does not come to David. So it's a covenant. They both exchange words. They have this promise, and then they part ways for a prolonged period of time. And it's an interesting thing that we don't quite associate anymore friendship with covenants. We think of covenants almost exclusively in the context of either business dealings or marriage. And so we see two people who stand before each other and they say, we promise no matter what, for the rest of our lives, as long as God gives us breath, we'll stay committed to each other. And we ask men and women to do that and become married to one another. But this is covenantal language that is used just between the two of them as friends. And there's something about it that is, at least it's in their minds, just as binding as any other covenant they make. They don't make covenants loosely. But the covenant is only as strong as the person who makes it. So let me put it in today's words. The promise. They're making promises to each other. A promise is only as good as the person who's making that promise. Saul made a promise. He broke it within four verses. (laughs) Jonathan makes a promise. And it is carried out for the rest of his life towards David. So this covenant binds them. Jonathan chooses to promise his faithfulness to David for the rest of his life. And what's really amazing is, as we said earlier, Jonathan is actually one of the princes. He has the most to lose by David's success. If everybody keeps loving David like they do, and then they say, we want David to be king. The person who's not is Jonathan. Saul's already been king, and he only has so much time left for being a king. So Jonathan chooses to be David's friend, even though Jonathan has the most to lose if David's popularity and success grows. David knows this, which is why throughout the Bible it describes their relationship as their souls knit together, they love each other as their own soul, and later when we'll see David writes a eulogy for Jonathan, he describes it in similar terms. Because Jonathan's not obligated to this in any way. Jonathan benefits nothing by David living. And so it's a choice that he makes, a promise he's willing to keep out of love that offers him almost nothing in return but he still stays bound to it. And so David's life and our ability to reflect on his life thousands of years later is directly connected to the faithfulness of this friend. And it's a truth today that our lives depend significantly on the friends we choose. The types of friends we choose will impact our lives more than almost any other decision we make. Right? You're kind of stuck with your family for a little while. Until you're old enough to get your own car and get out of the house, there's certain relationships you're just obligated to. But once you get past that and you have the freedom of movement and have figured out how to wait to buy dinner, your relationships are exclusively voluntary. So if you don't want to talk to your siblings anymore, you don't have to. If you don't want to ask your parents for advice anymore, you don't have to. If you don't want to build meaningful friendships with people, you don't have to. But all of us desire it. We all crave friendship and intimacy with other human beings. That's how we're wired. And so then the choices that we make of the friends that we will have 
becomes the most significant indicator of where our lives end up. Who will be there in the moments for us when everything is dark, it seems like there isn't future, there isn't a hope? Who do we go to for counsel, for advice? Whoever we go to, they will exert a significant amount of influence on us because they now have access to information that the majority of the world doesn't have about our lives, about our thoughts, about our doubts, about our emotions. And if we entrust all of that to someone who will then steer us in the wrong direction, that's likely the way we're going to go. If we entrust all of that to someone who desires our good and, and nothing more, they want what's best for us, however it affects them, then our lives will have a significantly better outcome. So many of our relationships, though, are, are kind of built around this mutual reciprocity where the advice we get from people is advice that also serves them well. It doesn't really require them to make any kind of sacrifice when they're giving us advice about what we should do. But a true friendship in a biblical sense that these two share is where they both look at each other and they say, I believe that what you're going to tell me to do with my life, you're going to tell me to do it for my own good, even if it costs you something. Because what you want for me is what's best for me. And so in that sense, a person cannot be a good friend if they're not a good person. A person cannot be a good friend if they do not desire what is good for you. It's just the same, same way of saying that. If what they desire for you is foolishness, is harm, is to just fall back into all your patterns and all your routines, then they're not a good friend to you. Oh, but they listen to me. Yeah, but you don't just need someone to listen to you. You don't just need someone to hang out with you. If you want a friend that will help you in this journey, then that person has to be of the type of character that what they desire for you is ultimately your good and not their own. And Jonathan demonstrated that to David over and over again because Jonathan had the most to lose in this battle. It was interesting, sort of an act of providence. We planned out this series uh, probably six weeks ago now, but I was at a lunch on Wednesday, and so someone handed me for attending the lunch the latest copy of Christianity Today, which the cover article is, Why Can't Men Be Friends? I was like, oh, that'll make potentially good material as we uh, look at the relationship between Jonathan and David. But here's one writer saying, describing two kinds of relationship. The first, she says, you could describe this way. You're mine because I love you. In this relationship, you and I may belong to a special friendship and share many of the joys that friendship makes possible. But such joys will last only as long as my love lasts. If I tire of you or am hurt by you, I'm free to walk away. No obligations, no hoops to jump through, no strings attached. The second type of relationship can be described this way. I love you because you're mine. Here, my love isn't the basis of our connection. It's the other way around. We're bound to each other, and therefore, I love you. You may bore me or wound me or otherwise become unattractive to me, but that doesn't mean I'll walk away. What would it mean to see friendship, specifically Christian friendship, the kind we want to strengthen and nurture in our churches, 
as that second kind of relationship rather than the first? What would it mean if we made promises to each other precisely as friends? Now, here's the, the author back in the first person. As a single person, I acutely need intimacy and loyalty from my friends. I'm eager for them to say to me, we love you because you're ours, without leaving an escape clause. Part of the reason I need that kind of friendship is because I don't think marriage is in my future. I'm gay, but I'm committed to a traditional Christian view that marriage is the union of a man and a woman. So when I contemplate a lifetime of celibacy, I know I want committed friends who will walk beside me on the journey. I need people who know what time my plane lands, who will worry about me when I don't show up when I say I will. I need people I can call and tell them about the funny thing that happened in the hallway after class. I need to know that come hell or high water, a few people will stay with me, loving me in spite of my faults and caring for me when I'm done. More, I need people for whom I can care. As a friend of mine put it, you want someone for whom you can make soup when she's sick, not just someone who will make soup for you when you're sick. Very honest letter saying, I want and need friendship. So for me, this has just been a week of reflecting on the way in which my own spiritual journey has been shaped by the friends God has placed in my life at all the strategic moments of significant decision for me. You and I will never quite be caught up in sort of the the political dynasty that's going on between Saul and David. I mean, part of what's creating this conflict between them is that there's a whole kingdom at stake in this. And Saul wants to preserve that kingdom, and so he wants to manipulate Jonathan in any way he can. I'm the youngest of four siblings. Um, So growing up, I always had to hang out with my siblings' friends because they had preference, they were older, and so they could invite people over. So I'm used to kind of always hanging out with older people. And so sometimes I'm described as an old soul. So I'm 31, but I think I'm going on 90 as well uh, in my own life. But I can distinctly remember being a part of a church uh, as a teenager that didn't have a youth group of any kind. And my brother and I, uh, similar in age, so we hung out a lot. And we can both reflect back on that time period and say, here were like three different guys who were about four to five years older than us, who initiated friendship with us, where they pretty much had to assume all of the cost of the friendship. We're like, I can't drive anywhere, and if we go out somewhere, I can't afford it, and I can't whatever. And somehow, they were willing, and we don't know why, even when we look back on it, what would make them pursue the friendship with us? We can understand why we wanted it with them, but it made all the difference in the world between the age of 13 and 17 when the, there were so many temptations provided for you that you could take that weren't as strong of temptations because someone else, older, said, we just want to be your friends. And then I think about another time, my senior year in high school, where another friend in my life, I won't say his name because he's sitting in the room, but he, he would do breakfast with me once a month just to talk about life. Different phase of life that we were in, and I said, Yeah, what would make this person older than me want to take me to breakfast once a month, but man, I could just talk about life, talk about things I was thinking, decisions that were in front of me. And then not very, very many months after that, there I am in my own world, kind of just pursuing all different sorts of thoughts. And he started to get concerned about it. And so he says, let's get together after work. He's married, has a kid at home. I work till about 1130 at night. 
So we get together at midnight at Steak and Shake, and we talk until 6.30 in the morning. Most of the conversation, we were probably talking past each other. Like, he was concerned about this, and I was trying to justify and explain it. We're going back and forth on on what each other means by the words we're using, but communication is always a two-way street. There's a verbal and a nonverbal. And when I looked at it and said, now who would stay up with me from midnight to 6.30 in the morning, caring enough about me to talk this through? There were very, very few people who would. So that morning, now it's time to go to school, so I call my dad and I'm like, hey dad, it's it's PJ. And he's like, PJ, hey, why are you doing? Whoa, wait a minute. You're not in your bed? (laughs) No, I didn't come home last night. I'm sorry about that. So I'm not condoning that for you teenagers. If... Unless, if you can read the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, all four volumes when you're 18, then you can stay up all night talking about it. Um, and I'll talk to your parents about it if, if you get into trouble. But it was that, you know. So then he says, okay, you're fine. Yeah, I'm fine. No, nothing bad happened. But I'm just, there's no point coming home. I'll just go straight to school. So went straight to school in my work outfit. And then later can think about um, another friend who, Almost everything I do as it relates to how I teach and why I teach the way I teach is, is, is significantly from another individual. And then there was a point in time where he actually invited me to teach with him. I was like, oh my goodness, I get to do that? Like, we get to sit down together and prepare lessons together? And before I go up and say anything, I can ask him, like, what about this? What about this? What about this? And yeah, and he, he was willing to do that, made that investment in my life. So that then when I came up to him and said, hey, could we meet together once a week and I actually like confess anything I'm struggling with to you? Just be honest and confess any sin to you. Oh yeah, I'd love to do that. Okay. And so we'd meet every week and it was an opportunity for confession with another person. All of these people are still people I know and stay in touch with, but as I was just preparing the series and thinking about the way in which friendship affects the decisions and every other major decision I've had since then about significant life change or, or potential things I look at and I say, wow, if I was left to my own thoughts, how many wrong choices I would have made. And I still don't feel like I've made all the right choices, but I can look back and without any doubt just say, thank you, God, for saving me through the people that you put into my life that when I opened up to them and shared everything, what they desired ultimately was my good. Whatever it meant for them, they desired to bless me. And then to know people now in my later life where you can, your, your family can be your friends. You get to be adults and then you just have to choose it though. It's not forced upon you anymore. But it's a special blessing when sometimes those relationships overlap and the joy that that is. And so this relationship meant so much to David. If you still have a Bible open, we're going to go to something that he writes when he finds out Jonathan dies. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 1. So we're not ending this week by standing up and reading a psalm because this isn't really an appropriate psalm to stand up and read, and you'll see why. <clears throat> but David, David's been on the run now, and he hears that Saul and Jonathan have died in battle. And so he writes these words. 2 Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 17. And David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Yashar. Skip down to verse 23. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. 
Your daughters of Israel weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. That's where we'll stop. So this is David in hearing the news of the death of what was his closest friend and that friend's father, putting in poetic language a eulogy on behalf of both of them. One of the things that's so amazing is how much David is actually grieving over Saul. Like Saul hated David. Saul want, like now if there was an opportunity for David to say, I really miss Jonathan, but man am I glad Saul is gone. He could have said it. Except that the way in which they loved each other was so much that for David, if this was Jonathan's father and I love Jonathan, then I'm not going to disrespect Saul. That that relationship between the two of them affected such that David could say, and when the beginning part, it's kind of awkward for us, but he's saying it should be taught to all the people. Everyone should be crying that Saul is gone. And, and David contributes the very song that they would sing, which makes Saul sound actually like a pretty good king. And David does that out of one conviction about what it means to be the Lord's anointed. We'll look at that in two weeks. But it's also connected to the fact that the relationship that he had with Jonathan affected the way that he then thought about all of Jonathan's family. But there he says it, your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of a woman. The next article in this magazine has just a great title as well. It says, I didn't marry my best friend. Instead, I married my husband with all my best friends beside me, and it was the happiest day of my life. And it just talks about the connection between marriage and friendship. And so I can hand that to any of you that want to read it because we've kind of gone long. But there is a distinct relationship that men can have with men, that women can have with women, that parents can have with children, that God does not, doesn't desire us to choose between any of them. There's a distinct relationship that a spouse can have with one another. But every good marriage needs friends. Every single person needs friends. Every older person needs friends. Every younger person needs it. And then the storyline of the scripture is to, to keep driving home how we're created in such a way. And then it introduces to us a person named Jesus who is called the friend of sinners. And that he's willing to be a friend to each and to every one of us. For me, Sister Annie, one of the blessings of, of, of knowing you is that you're one of the people uh, on a very, very short list of people I know who it really sounds like Jesus is your friend. I, mean, I was talking to her before service started and she says, you know, I'm 90 years old, I'm this, I'm that. She's going through her life and she says, but you know what? I'm never alone because Jesus is always with me. I was like, yeah, see, you talk like that and I don't know a whole bunch of people who do, but you really sounds like there's a relationship there and it's something that he actually offers to each and to every one of us in every phase of life with whatever friends we already have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we're thankful that you have made us in such a way that we crave, desire, long for relationships and community. 
Well, we know part of that means that we've experienced a lot of hurt, a lot of wounds, a lot of pain, precisely from our relationships. And Father, I know that in a congregation like this, there are many people who have been burned by people that they thought were friends and weren't. And so we just come before you in all our different phases of life and ask that you would reveal yourself as a friend to us. That whatever relationships we do have or have had, whatever hurts we've had, that none of that would draw us further away from you and miss out on what you provide that nobody else can. Father, we pray that you would help us to think through our relationships very intentionally, especially the ones that we do choose. And that we would make the right kind of friends who point us in the right direction, who save us from our own stupidity, who don't walk out on us when we change or become less attractive. And Father, help us to love each other so well that the world takes notice and wants to know more and more about you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.